and I kept going back to the doctors back and forth and then finally they didn't know what to how to help me really so one of them said have you tried cold showers to mm. have inflammation and I didn't want to get in the cold shower and I live on the coast so I thought I'll just get in the sea in the winter and straight away that worked Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Josh Bennett, and these are Transnatural Perspectives. This is the show where we bring you global perspectives on society and culture across environments and landscapes so that you can keep nature in focus in wherever you are and whatever you do. I'm recording live here from Oslo, Norway, and if this is your first time joining us, please make sure that you subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening wherever you're watching and plus don't forget you can follow us on social media pretty much everywhere now at transnatural pod that's at symbol all one word transnatural pod it's also much appreciated if you can share this podcast wherever possible it really is the best way to support the show and spread our message of sustainability nature connectedness and environmental awareness all around the globe i think we are in almost 40 countries now it's really amazing Anyways, stop bragging. Now, on with the show. So chances are you've been swimming in wild places. You know, wild places like rivers, waterfalls, beaches, mountain lakes, maybe city park lakes. Who knows? And chances are if you've ever gone swimming outside a pool, then the answer is yes. But what about ice cold water? What about in the middle of winter? What about a time like right now here in November? Some of you might say, oh yeah, well, I've done the polar plunge a time or two, but what if I told you that our guest today is a professional cold water swimmer? That's right. Laura Owen Sanderson has found a way to combine her love for cold water, wild swimming, and environmental conservation. Laura is the founder of We Swim Wild, a nonprofit organization and campaigning body that inspires, unites, and empowers wild swimming communities and water users to take action against microplastic pollution and other silent contaminants. As you're going to hear, Laura stopped by the virtual studio to share her story of how wild, cold water swimming changed her life, taking her from the pain of chronic illness to becoming an advocate for water conservation and her current mission of swimming across all 15 national parks in the UK. While organizing over 100 volunteers to conduct the largest citizen science water research project ever conducted in the country, we can see that Laura's story is one that shows the healing power of nature connectedness. Make sure you stick around because later on in the show, Laura is also going to give us some tips on how we can prepare for our own cold water wild swimming experience so enjoy everybody see you on the other side for some reflections and i'm really excited because we have special guests they're all special guests but we have a (laughs) special guest on the show today all the way from the UK, that's United Kingdom, for anybody that's not familiar with these abbreviations. We have Laura Sanderson. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Laura. Uh, how are you doing today? Thanks for having me. Yeah, good. Thank you. We're over in Wales in Snowdonia. Over in Snowdonia. And okay, I should have I should have given you a more proper introduction because um, the reason why we're having Laura on the show today is because, I don't know. I I can't imagine any person I've heard of, and I could be wrong, so, but that is more of an advocate for wild swimming than Laura. And I first came to know you from this film, this very beautifully shot film that I've seen on, on Vimeo, YouTube, somewhere out there on the internet called Hydrotherapy. And it got, it's this beautifully shot film of you swimming out in the wilderness and talking about your story about how you got into wild swimming and and cold water swimming. And I myself love to go swimming and it just made me want to go swimming so much in the cold water. And then I thought, okay, I need to learn more about this before I start doing that. Can you tell us a little bit about what your connection with wild swimming and what is wild swimming? And, and, And a lot of people are afraid to get in cold water and stuff like that. So yeah, how did this all get started? I'd always, always been a fair weather swimmer, just, you know, when it's sunny, getting in the water. But um, okay. I'd actually been, got ill, and that's how I started swimming through winter. So I had an accident. I ended up in A&E, which is what that film's about, 
really. So I almost died. And then I, and when I got better, I started to suffer with fibromyalgia, which is when your muscles are really stiff. And you, I felt like it was a hundred. So I went from being really fit to being like hardly being able to walk across mm. the room for a while. And I kept going back to the doctors back and forth. And then finally they didn't know what to, how to help me really. So one of them said, have you tried cold showers? So mm. I got inflammation and I didn't want to get in the cold shower and I live on the coast. So I thought I'll just get in the sea in the winter and straight away that worked. I think it's the salt in the water, but it just really eased up the muscles. And then because we're stuck with kind of coastal tides, I started to venture out more into the mountains, like the mountain lakes and rivers. And it's quite addictive. Once you start, you, you get quite addicted to it, I think. Wow. Yeah. Th that's actually what I've heard. You know, over here in Oslo, it's also become kind of a trend recently because we have a lot of floating saunas on the fjord. And I don't know if you've ever been to Oslo, but of course you can imagine it's quite cold in the water here too. And so recently there's been a lot more people swimming, I guess you could say kind of wild, but urban wilderness of the Oslo fjord. But I have seen this lady and some of the people that I know that are really into it, of course, I go there sometimes too to the sauna, say that what you just said, it gets kind of addicting which I think sounds probably crazy for a lot of people because they say, oh God, I never want to, you know, a lot of fair weather swimmers out there. Oh, I would never want to go jump in the freezing cold water, but it gets addicting. What about it? How can, I don't know. Can you, I mean, you, you even, feel, even I sometimes don't want to get in when I yeah. up a mountain, but you never regret getting in ever. Uh, yeah. Especially people like in Norway and over here, we're not blessed with warm water. So you're going to work. <laughs> but once you go in, you get like a hit afterwards, like the afterglow. Uh, with the endorphin rush. So I think that's the bit that's probably quite addictive. And it's quite refreshing to get into cool water and it completely takes your mind off or anything else because you're just thinking about, <laughs> I guess, like surviving in that moment. But yeah, it's really, I, I recommend everybody does it at least once. Yeah, it, it, I can say in my, and also I come from a very warm water place. I'm from Florida originally. So my, out, uh, you know, growing up outdoor experience is very much in this always fair weather swimming conditions. But uh, yeah, I can, I've experienced that myself where, you, yeah, I think you're right. You get this endorphin rush afterwards and you feel refreshed. And even in that moment, I don't know, we could say maybe it's a bit, I almost feel like it's like almost an instant meditation you know, to jump in and then, yeah, you're just focused on, oh, my heartbeat. Oh, it's so cold. Oh, and then, yeah, then it feels kind of good. How, I'm just curious too, you said a couple of terms in there that I'm not so sure everybody's familiar with. So when you first came to this wild swimming, it was also, it was kind of because of health reasons, like immediate health reasons. You said you were, you what, a and &E, is that an like, intensive oh, care or something like yeah, that? that's just the emergency Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> emergency room for all of you yeah. no, people that don't live in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. And and then five and then you said you had you came up with fibromyalgia. Yeah, um, I'd had like a lot of blood transfusions and the knock on effect was that, for example, like a month after all my nails fell off, my toes and my feet, because my body had gone into shock apparently. Thought it died. Wow. And, come, <laughs> and then Fibromyalgia, it's really, I'd, I'd never been ill before. So it was, it was a shock, but it'd gone from zero to, you know, a thousand to zero. It, it's, it's like inflamed muscles and you can hardly move them. You feel like you're a hundred and you can't even walk. It's like just getting out of bed was really difficult. So I kept going back to find out, you know, what, what can they could do to fix it? And they didn't really know themselves. So one of the, I think it was a student doctor actually just said, have you tried cold showers or cold baths? And I don't, I, that's never appealed to me. Even now I know the Wim Hof method, they do a mm. challenge so you can get used to cold water, but standing in a cold shower is not on my list of favorite things to do. I don't know about you. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So cold, cold swimming, but still warm showers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I'm too extremes, but I think it's like more holistic, just the whole, you're out in mm -hmm. the environment and, and you're freezing cold, but you've got a beautiful landscape to look at. It's not. It's not like standing in a ceramic tile bathroom, is it? Just staring at a tile. So yeah, uh, definitely. Mm -hmm. if you've tried cold showers, it's not worked for you. Definitely try it out, outdoor swimming. And uh, what, how about before all of this happened? Were you quite, uh, an out, like an outdoors person? Like it seems you, you are today or, or was, yeah. And um, not as much. I obviously, we live in the mountains and on mm. the coast of Snowdonia. So yeah, I would go like hiking and, but not majorly when I was younger. Tried like surfing, used to surf a bit on the beaches, but not, I think I would say from mid twenties to mid thirties, I'm 38 now. I don't think 
I really went out as much. I was completely consumed by work actually. Wow. And so this was kind of a life-changing health incident that really sent you into a stronger connection with like nature and your natural surroundings through the water. Yeah, sure. So I used to be in education and teaching and yeah, I guess if anybody's listening as a teacher, they'll know how all-consuming that is. Oh yes. Yeah. So I, Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess I just worked. I'd come home, work, I'd travel like really far for my job. I'm a single parent. So I put the kids to bed, then I'd work and then I'd get up at five and do it all over again. And then I guess my body must've just given up, (laughs) which is why I got ill. Um, Yeah. I think a lot of teachers out there can, I'm sure can identify with that, especially if you're maybe, even if you're an outdoors teacher and you get to be outside all day, but if you're, if you're an indoor teacher, I know I've, I've been there for many years being an indoor teacher. It is incredible. The, the toll that that takes on the human body. Sustainable, I don't think. No. The more pressure you put on yourself. So I think the whole system is a bit flawed (laughs) in that sense, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a whole other story. The, the, the sustainability of the teaching. So, but, but the moral of this story is that if you're a teacher out there, you could probably use some wild swimming, you know, if you can, or some cold water swimming, rejuvenate your body. I'm curious a little bit before I move on, just, you know, how I first found out about you is through this film hydrotherapy, which is just a beautifully shot film. And it's, it's a short film, just, I think about eight minutes long uh, or something like that. But how, how did that film come about? And I I suggest everybody goes out and checks this out. Well, I have an Instagram account, my own Instagram account, Wild Welsh Swimmer. And they were looking for a swimmer who had a story or a background So they find me on Instagram, really, and they're a really good film company called Friction Collective from Bristol. Mm -hmm. Um, And they approached me and said, can we come and, you know, film about your story? And I don't really, I was a bit dubious at first. I don't really like being on camera. (laughs) So I put it off and put it off. And then by the time they came, it was last December. And then they came back and filmed a bit in January this year. So it was when it was at its coldest, really. But, and we did it when it was a weather warning, it was tipping it down with the rain, it could, <laughs> but the film looks quite beautiful, but it was actually freezing and then probably quite worse, you know, for them with their camera kit and everything, it was quite um, intense. Yeah, it, it is a really, I, I keep saying this, but it is a very beautifully shot film yeah. and it is amazing. So that was in January when this film yeah, was shot. filmed three or four days in dis- late December. And then they came back in the first week of January or second week of January and they filmed another two or three days. Mm-hmm. So, and this was, and this was, is in, was this shot in the area where you live? Yeah. So it's in Snowdonia. So I basically took them to some of my favorite swim spots. Okay. So yeah. So everybody, I know this is an audio podcast, so we can't watch the film right now, but go out and watch this film. It, uh, this area, Snowdonia. So is this, how far was this area that you went to go swimming? Cause it looks very wild, like out in the middle of nowhere. So it's a national park, Snowdonia national park. I live mm-hmm. in Harlech on the beach that you can drive five, 10 minutes and be at, you know, a really beautiful waterfall, or you can go for a hike in the mountains for a bit longer. So it was all kind of around where I live, where I would go normally. We were limited with all the camera kit to go up to the really wild spots. Mm-hmm. But they managed to come up, go up to Cumsillin, which is one of my favorites, which is about, it's only about a 40 minute hike, I think. Yeah. Okay. So is that like a common swimming area for you? Oh no, I hate the big, yeah. I don't really like the popular swim spots because I go, I go to get away from it all to reset. So mm-hmm. for me, a swim spot filled with 20, 30 people is not my idea of relaxation. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I don't recommend you go on your own, but I often just wander off on my own somewhere just for a bit of peace and quiet and to just relax really. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas many people would want to go sit in like a jacuzzi tub or something like this. This is, this is very, very amazing. What do you think, you know, is there, have you, have you seen some re- research behind this? And I know you're up to research too, but maybe a different kind of research, but is there any research that you found related to the human body and the benefits explaining it further than just like, I know I feel good when I do that, but is there research behind that, that you've discovered? There's lots of research being done at the moment on, for example, mental health and depression, because there's a lot of people who use it to combat signs of depression, but it's great for, you could look up Wim Hof and people like that. They say it's great for your immune system. Um, mm-hmm. regularly obviously it's like going to the gym you can't just go once and be <laughs> you need to like go a couple of times a week so it's great for your immune system it's great for they say it's great for losing weight but 
I don't know about that. I haven't really seen that as myself yet. But for, for me, it's more about the mindfulness. Cold water exposure has got, there's lots of research been done into cold water exposure and how that's great for your um, body in general. But for me, it's about just switching off and having that mm-hmm. time in just being outside anyway. It was great. But if you start swimming outside, you're sort of in the landscape. You're not just mm-hmm. looking at it. So before I used to hike up and have a look. But you really feel like you're part of the kind of connected to the landscape when you're in the water because you're in like, especially in Snowdonia and ancient waters. Well, kind of mentioned, but um, yeah, you should definitely try it. Yeah, I think that is, I mean, of course, there's, uh, there's, there's tons of research out there and it's a growing body about, you know, nature connectedness and the benefits of, you know, being outside. And this is we're talking to lots of people about that all the time. But yeah, this is kind of taking it to another level because a lot of the time I think we're exploring nature from our still kind of within some comfort zone, the comfort zone of, you know, being warm and dry in our sweaters and our, our wellies and our, you know, our rain gear or maybe atop a kayak or something like that. But I had I, I I have to say, even though I'm not from originally from a cold water place, I had to I, I identify a bit with this because I know there's no outdoor activity I love more than swimming and just maybe snorkeling, like, you know, looking through the goggles under the water and just I, I, I could identify with that, that feeling of just floating in the water. And then it's great that you combine it kind of with with, you know, the physical activity of swimming, too, which I mean, whether you do it in a swimming pool, or you do it in the middle of a beautiful lake, it's going to be good for you to go swimming. And then you just top on put on top of that the nature connection and ah, just seems like an awesome activity. What do you think, do you have any idea why this might not be a common activity or like, do you hear things from people? Why, why they're not so eager to go do this kind of stuff? In the UK, it's really, it's like gone through the roof in popularity over coronavirus because all of the, so every single pool was shut. So all of the people who train like triathletes and professional swimmers, they all started moving outside because that was the only option. And I think because they started off in the summer, if you keep it up, you don't notice the change in the temperature so much. But I remember when I was growing up, there was huge adverts about like, don't swim here. You'll get, you'll drown. You'll get pulled. Really? I remember what they were now. I'm sure they were like, probably about reservoirs and sponsored by like the water board and things like that. But it generally there was a fear about open water. Hmm. Yeah. I remember that as a kid, but we, my, my mum used to be like a semi-professional diver at one point. So she had us swimming from dot. So by two, we could swim properly. And we grew up in the on the coast, so we were always in the sea. But I remember even myself growing up thinking that when you look at a lake, they're quite daunting. Um, they look black almost on the top because they just reflect the mountain. But I started taking a GoPro and filming underneath, and they're so blue and crystal clear. And people think things are going to trap them or pull them down. But if you take a GoPro and you swim, you'll see how it's so beautifully clear most of the places that you swim. Interesting. I wonder why they, I mean, I have to look into that. Why were they, so don't go into the open water. This is, maybe this is, what's it called? This is the fault of the Loch Ness monster, probably. (laughs) No, I think there were some places, probably places that people shouldn't swim, like reservoirs that were dangerous, but it kind of just stuck with you that, you know, you shouldn't go in, you'll drown, they're deep, they're cold. We'd always, Mm -hmm. I think there's a few still knocking around. But I mean, obviously safety is really important, but if you kind of educate yourself and know what, you know, know where you're going and be as safe as possible, then you'll, you'll be fine. Sure. It's like any kind of outdoor activity or outdoor venture that you might participate in. You got to be prepared. Do you sense that in your activity that you do, is there some kind of uh, danger involved at any point in time? Or is there things that people should think about to be prepared to stay safe while going wild swimming? Oh, it depends what water body you're going to go in. So, so I've never really had anything, but even the other day I was stupid and went off, off piste and decided randomly that after the school run, I would go and check out this waterfall. But I only had wellies on and it was a really, it's a really remote one. And I ended up in the ravine climbing up it. <laughs> you know, and you can't wow. to go up or go down. So um, always wear the right kit. If you're going for a hike, wear hiking gear, just because obviously you, you don't know how, what you're going to encounter. But with the sea, educate yourself on tides, rip, t- rip currents, try and swim on a slack tide if possible, which is an hour before high tide or after. With rivers, try and avoid swimming outdoors generally after really heavy rain for 48 hours because of pollution and because if you throw a stick in and it's faster than you can walk or swim, then it's too fast. Always take somebody with you swimming. 
make sure people know where you are, for example. Yeah, mm. there's lots of different tips. You can find them on our website. We've put lots of tips on there. And we've got an Instagram channel called We Swim Wild. And we put every Tuesday, we put a set of tips on there that will help people if they want to start out cold water swimming. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Yeah. We'll definitely drop that link in the description of the show so everybody can go check it out. You know, speaking of which you have this organization that uh, you can tell us how, how, how long you've been working on this, but it's called We Swim Wild. So can you just give us a little synopsis of, you know, what this organization is all about and, you know, how did it get started? How did it get started? So We Swim Wild is a nonprofit organization that I founded with Dr. Christian Dunn, who's a scientist. And it's really about purposeful adventure. So we want to encourage people to go outside, but we want them to also at the same time protect wild waters. So we combine science with education, with outdoor like retreats and introduction to cold water swimming courses. <clears throat> but running through the thread of all that is the environment and trying to gather data, scientific data, so we can make real changes in the UK. Amazing. So it sounds like it's a multifaceted organization, all kind of being yeah tied together with this thread of environmental activism, I guess we could say, which is really fantastic. I know one of the you know basics of this podcast is always trying to find how people can be active, like an activist, no matter what they're doing, whether they're a teacher or a swimmer or a, a doctor or a lawyer or something yeah, like that. I found that um, there's, there's, a, there's a huge gap because people are doing great things in science, but that every day, you know, I don't often know about it or most people don't know about it because there's not a kind of a bridge between the two. So the aim of ours is to sort of bring science into the everyday so people can take care of the places that they swim or that they visit. Yeah, and do you have any examples of how you end up through your organization bringing science into like everyday life in people's activities? So I started off by doing beach cleans in Snowdonia called Snowdonia Beach Clean. And I started um, noticing all the smaller pieces of plastic. So from that, probably not answering your question, but from that, uh, at the time, a few years ago, I kept hearing in the media that plastic never goes anywhere, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You probably heard the same things. And we just see smaller and smaller pieces that were clearly from back in the 60s, 70s, you know, the thicker, harder plastic. And I was thinking, where, what do they mean by this? Like, where is it going? So to highlight that like 70% obviously of plastic comes from terrestrial inland waterways, I decided to swim from Snowdon to the sea. But at the same time, I wanted to collect data or to find out what was actually in the water. Because if you've ever been to Snowdonia, the water is crystal clear, like drinking water. So wow. it's like you grab a glass and drink it. So at the same time, a scientist had come out and produced, published data that they'd found microplastics in all the lakes in the UK. And just by fluke of luck, really, the scientist happened to be Dr. Christian Dunn, who was at my local university. So that was an easy, you know, I straight away I contacted him and he was really keen to test that water. So I took water samples in Avon Glaslin and we found microplastics in the top of the waterway. And it looked like a glass of drinking water. You, you couldn't see it unless it had been run through the lights in the labs. And we found it at the source all the way through the waterway. And that's how it all began, really. Wow. Yeah. So now we have a project called the Water Loggers, where we have swimmers across the UK who are currently from October 31st till the end of this month. They're sending us water samples from any type of water in the UK that's natural. And we're going to map microplastics. So it's enabling people to protect the place they love and find out what's in it. And then we're going to use all of that data to lobby the UK government to start testing it as an emergent contaminant. Wow, that's incredible. So this is uh, huge. This is a huge study. Yeah, I think I just answered your question with like a barrage of information. Oh, this is what we like. We want as much information as we can get. How many, just so we get an idea of like the scope of this study. I mean, how how many people are working on this and what, what areas? We have a hundred. So we have them all the way up in the Shetland Islands, which is like the most northern tip, all the way down to Scilly, over in Northern Ireland, We've got people in cities like London. We've got people in Isle of Skye, you know, like really remote wow. areas. So all over, we're doing a complete random study of different types of water. So because we, we don't yet know, lots of people have done different studies, but we haven't mapped the levels in UK waters. So it's a complete study of that to give us a picture, the bigger picture, of what's actually going on. Interesting. So this, yeah, this sounds like a huge study. I mean, has there ever been a study like this done before? No, it's the biggest 
citizen science project for microplastics in the UK. I don't know about the world, but definitely in the UK. And I don't think Christian realized how many we were going to get. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> started, I thought it would be quite hard to get a few people on board, but it's been so popular. We've been turning people down but just because it's self-funded and we have to obviously pay the postage and get volunteers in the labs um, when they're doing their PhD. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's a big study. Wow. This is, uh, that's pretty incredible. And, and like, I just, I, I, I didn't ask this before, so I'm just curious. So in, in, in what was your background? Like, what were you teaching? Are, are you were you involved in science before this all got started? Oh, my mom's environmental scientist and my brother and sister both did marine biology, but I, I went down the arts route. So I, uh-huh. I fine art and graphics, so I'm not at all, but it's been my passion as is, is wildlife, the environment, especially the ocean and the, the marine life. So I didn't as a career, but it's just always kind of been something that, that I'm most interested in. Um, it's in your genes. Yeah, if you like, like five years ago, you'd be running a nonprofit and be swimming. I would have been like, no way. It, like, it just wasn't on my radar at all, actually. <laughs> but have you been with all of this, you know, with this organization that you're running, have you been able to integrate the, you know, more visual arts aspect to it also? Or? Um. We are looking at doing, so I haven't talked about the Source to Sea project, which is oh. the national parks, but we are, I'll talk about that in a minute, but it's, yeah, we're hoping to do a fine art exhibition um, that connect, fuses art with science uh, to connect with people, our findings from that research. So yes, that is in the back burner, but coronavirus is uh, holding us back at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, how... Let me see. Yeah. How, how, how has coronavirus impacted this data research? Okay, so the original swimming in general maybe was that. So I swam the national park in Snowdonia and found microplastics, and then I wanted to swim all of the national parks in the UK, so all fifteen, to test the levels of microplastics from that down a complete waterway. So from the source, because normally at the source it's constantly moving, so they shouldn't be in the source. But if they're in the source, it's in the air and the precipitation. So I mean, we don't yet know the full effect of that on wildlife, on human health, on you know there's it's going to be like the asbestos, isn't it? Of the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah. So the plan was to swim all of the national parks. So I started on September the 1st. I swam Wales. I got ill in Pembrokeshire from cow slurry in the water. (laughs) And then I swam Brecon in South Wales. And then I went up to Scotland and swam the Loch Lomond of the Trossachs. And then I swam the River Spey. And then straight after that, so that was by the time I'd done that was the end of September. And then England went into lockdown. So I was due to then go to Northumberland and North Yorkshire Moors, but all of that was in a local lockdown. And now, of course, England is in a month lockdown and I'm over in Wales. And yeah. So, yeah, it's constantly hit and miss. Um, when, you, when you say you swam, when you swam Wales, what does that mean? Like, did you swim no. every lake in Wales or how does this work? <laughs> I swam one river from the source to the edge of the park or to the mouth of, as it opens up into the sea. Um, in every national park. So there's three national parks in Wales. There's two huge national parks in Scotland, which were the biggest. So I think the Spey was 175 kilometers. Basically in a couple of weeks, three weeks, we've done 550 kilometers. So we've got another, we've got 450 kilometers to do in England. There's 10 national parks in England, but they're smaller. So they're much smaller. So but just logistically to get around them all is, you can't really be doing that in coronavirus, can you, going from one area to <laughs> Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess not. It's it's interesting. I mean, everywhere is is quite different. So, is that how it is right now in the UK? You can't really tra- traverse from uh, one, I don't know, province to another. Or? Uh, Wales, England aren't allowed into Wales at the moment. But when we were doing it, it was that stupid business of local lockdown, so nobody mm-hmm. knew what was going on. So it was a nightmare when you're an adventure and you've got no phone signal. You're camping, but normally on an adventure, we'd like hitchhike back to the source. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do that because no one wants you in their car. Uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it affected us in lots of different ways that we didn't even think about. So just relying on things like the local bus in lo- in the River Spey, mm-hmm. that was off because of coronavirus. Just things like that. You couldn't get around. You couldn't go to shops. You couldn't get media coverage to highlight it because mm. in one hand they were saying you, you can't move around and then they couldn't say hey, this one here is going around the whole of the UK. <laughs> So yeah, okay. let's stop to it really, and we'll bring it back next year, early next year. 
Interesting. And yeah, was this like a continuous journey? Was this supposed to be a continuous journey or is it kind of like you're going to different places uh, on the weekend or how, how does that work out? It took, I set aside six weeks, but it would probably have taken two months in reality to do. Uh, it wow. back, so it's absolutely knackering, I'm not going to lie. So yeah, so we swim one, drive to the next one, next morning, get up at, at dawn, start swimming and, and not stop until it was too dark to swim. Next day, the same. As soon as you'd finished that one, we drove up to Scotland. I did have to take a week out from the first one because I got gastroenteritis and they didn't know if I'd picked up any parasites because I'd swam, oh, no. I'd swam up by, it's in a national park. So I just thought, presumed they'd be really clean. But I didn't even think about agricultural runoff. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a dairy farm area on the Eastern Kledai. And I think there's a 10 meter buffer zone, but if you've got sloping land and heavy rain, that's not going to, that's not going to stop slurry running straight in. And it was tidal, so the tide was going out, but I was already in it. And this is not to put people off swimming. Normally, I would never swim in this. You do your research for one. <laughs> it's just the real talk. <laughs> and the tide had gone out, so the banks that were left were like sinking banks of slurry. It was pretty gross, actually. And then, yeah, straight away, I got in from it. But this is, of course, this is ex- this is like extreme wild swimming here. This is not probably the average. Yeah, for fun. <laughs> 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 it was so like water quality. We were looking at microplastics, but actually the project so far has thrown up so many other issues with waters. And, and halfway through the study, it came out that the UK had one of the worst water, river water qualities in Europe. I think we were like 28 out of 30, which is like shocking. But wow. Why? So parts of the Brecon was like a putrid green. When I researched it, when I got home, that's from chicken farming. It's just so, like, I never, obviously, Surfers Against Sewage, who I represent locally, they do a lot about human sewage, but I'd never even thought about agricultural. I don't know why it never occurred to me before, but I think there's a, there's a lot to answer for with agriculture and land use. and water. Yeah, wow. That brings up some uh, very... Very interesting issues because I think, yeah, there's the, there's the people and then there's the, the animals that the people farm and they're creating a lot of, a lot of poisonous stuff too, going straight into the water. I mean, that's a whole other study. That's the, <laughs> that's a whole other study. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it sounds like, okay, so you're doing this swim and you're doing this swim across all the national parks in the UK. And you're, you're also, aside from the citizen scientists that you have in your network, you're also collecting samples as well as kind of doing a semi kind of promotional tour of this idea. Yeah. So the National Park Study, the Source to Sea project is to track a waterway from source to the sea. So mm-hmm. that was the whole project for this year, but because of coronavirus stopped, mm-hmm. they wanted to keep that study going. So we, know, we don't know what's going to happen with coronavirus, whether it goes off next year or whether it, you know, we didn't want to, I didn't want to stop the study and lose kind of what, what we're trying to do. So that's why I enlisted, I thought about having a citizen science project for, I thought if I can't get to these wild places, but people are going there every day for their exercise, then why don't I just get them to send me the water? <laughs> and because I'm doing tracking a waterway from source to sea, I also wanted to those are kind of our national parks are supposed to be our most protected areas. So it's like two different studies, really. So I'm looking at that so I could present to the government, look, this is what's in our most protected areas. But then also I wanted a complete map of the UK that can say, look, in this urban area, there's this much in this remote island, there's this much because I think it's because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. It's like a silent contaminant. Um, Mm. And I think it's really important that people understand that and what this project has done the waterlogger project enlisting the help of all these swimmers is really bring home to people and swimmers what is in the water because it does look clear it does look like it's beautiful but actually in there are such small fine particles of microplastics that it's not as be- you know it's not as clean as we think yeah i would be very curious for example i mean of course i think we can all assume that the water down in in london is not is going to have a lot of stuff in it but i'd be very curious to see what's happening up in like the isle of sky or something yeah. like that because have you i mean i know that the study is just in process right now but have you had any initial findings or any maybe surprises in the, the first I'm, one that we did the snowden one um mm-hmm. from the top but snowden's a popular mountain it's the biggest mountain in wales so I started mm-hmm. pretty much under Cribgoch. There's a big lake called Avon Glasland. Um, sorry, Glasland and Clin Glaslin. I can't speak. Uh, so mm-hmm. I found from there down the waterway, and that's so crystal clear. Like you can see the bottom in the deepest part is so clear, and it's the cleanest one. 
And we really didn't think we were going to find any at the source. We thought we might find some lower down stream when we go through some villages. But a month after I did the swim, it came out that they'd found microplastics in the air at the Alps. So by the time the actual results came in, we knew that there was likely there was going to be microplastics in there. But we didn't, we we only found like a, a small sample, but because it's constantly moving, that water source, there shouldn't be any in there. So it's obviously coming from precipitation and rain. But there is not enough hard evidence that shows you know, people have done one-off studies and people are working on things. But there's not kind of a blanket study on this is how much is in the national parks in through waterways. And this is how much is generally in UK waters at any one time. And that's what this study is about. All right. So it's big, giant, comprehensive study. I love also that you're employing good old citizen scientists because it's really... Uh, I think such a valuable use of, you know, people's skills that might not be involved in like university systems or like big national government agencies, but we still just, just even the little people were able to go out there and yeah. collect the data that that's really important. Places and want to protect them. Yeah. That, that they visit them pretty much every day, most of them. So I think if you confuse people's passion for something and somewhere that they love and then highlight that, that this is happening and that's what kind of we're like bridging the gap between kind of people power and science and then using people's power to like lobby the UK government then with that information to say, Hey, this isn't good enough. We want them to start classing it as like they do for nitrates and phosphates as an emergent contaminant. Cause mm-hmm. behind that with my thinking was if they do start classing it as an emergent contaminant, then they have to act on it. They can't just say, Oh yes, it's a pollutant. They have to then do something about it. So that's the bigger, wider strategy of what we're trying to do. Ooh, amazing. That's awesome. So this is, yeah, it's a whole, it's, it's taking activism to a next level rather than just getting everybody in the community to uh, like sign a petition or something, which is also helpful, but uh, actually showing, hey, we've got people out there who actually care about these places and they're kind of taking control over, we could say like the means of production, which is typically, you know, typically reserved for people with high degrees or people that are like up in, you know, up in the stratosphere of the government, but just bringing it back down to the citizens is... Uh, yeah, that's pretty radical, actually. Well, we've done a lot of um, beach cleans and they were really popular. We're getting like 80 people every time, just local, mm-hmm. a local beach. And um, my strategy was that we can't keep doing this. We can't keep. It's great for highlighting the issue to say to people, sure. look, we're picking up this stuff. But the tap's still on and it's, ju- it's just a point, not a pointless exercise. But it's great for obviously every bit helps, but there isn't, you can't keep cleaning up when it's still pouring out. So the point of this is to try and hit the big businesses or hit the authorities, the people who can make those changes and say, you know, this is the data, you need to act on it. Because we're not, we are, we had a bit of funding from Orca and Hydro Flask for the logistics of the Source to Sea project, but the rest of it's been completely uh, self-funded and because people are generally passionate about it. And I think that has got real legs to make um, a movement or to come about real change. Yeah, this is this is awesome. Uh, thank you so much for doing that. Because yeah, like I say on this podcast all the time, we got to attack from all sides. You know what I mean on the on the issues of environmental catastrophe, climate change, all this kind of stuff, water pollution, whatever it might be that is. And it's particularly great that you know, yeah, you can find whatever you're passionate about. If you're into swimming, okay, what's behind the swimming and what's behind the places that you go swimming in, whether it's the ocean or, 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 or a lake somewhere, whatever's around you, there's, there's a lot happening in there that we can do. I like, the, I kind of, sometimes I think it's, I used to do cleanups here too in Oslo. We'd go out into the forest and clean up a lot of stuff when the snow melts and you find all this weird stuff from people's skis and all this stuff people have been doing during the winter time and i always thought yeah this is nice it's great that we do this it's great especially for instagram and and hopefully it influences other people to go out and maybe do that in their own neighborhood but in a way in many ways it's also kind of it's like it's almost like a it's an activity itself but it's almost like a gateway kind of for getting into maybe deeper things having to do with environmental conservation so i'm also curious a little bit so you were telling me a little bit before we started recording that there's also you know a tourism component to the whole organization and that is in part helping you fund some of these projects and i'm I'm particularly personally interested in this too because i've been very much involved in tourism and i think that a lot of people who are you know one way or another involved in outdoor education or outdoor studies or adventure yada 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 all this good stuff that we love to do end up kind of working somehow in the tourism industry because it's kind of you know brother and sister kind of 
destinations that people with these kind of skills can end up in. And, you know, recently we've been talking a lot about it on the show is that how you can use tourism as also a way to educate people, not just as this kind of, uh, you know, luxury piece of, you know, uh, offshoot of a, a good economy or something. People can go relax. It's great. So, but you can actually use it in a way that you have a captive audience that's there. They're interested to listen to you and what you have to say and participate in whatever activity you're doing and can actually educate in that way too. So how does that work in your organization with the tourism component? Um, the tourism, so we do eco retreats and we also do like introduction to cold water swimming courses to enable people to have a safe access to these environments. So obviously I'm a lifeguard and got different qualifications to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But it also funds, enables us to do the, the you know, I said it's self-funded. The other research enables us to do that as well. So yeah, we run those throughout the year. Obviously coronavirus has been hit and miss. We've just refunded the entire November calendar. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Which is a bit of a hit. But yeah, so what we try and do is we do a small we keep it to small group sizes if we do groups or one-to-one. We also teach people how to be mindful of their environment because here in the UK, like huge swim groups have taken off. But so I've seen the damage myself locally when you get like 30 or 40 people trampling a, a, like a triple SI or going in with, you know, so it's all about education. So people go to places like a triple SI, but they'll have like loads of perfume on or sunscreen, you know, and they're really mm. kind of ecosystems. So our trips kind of educate people about that, but also how to be safe in the water, how to be mindful. So I'm a hydro flask who help us as well with sponsorship. Marethal for good advocate for them. So it's about also, you know, getting people to stop thinking about single use items, you know, and try and pre-plan and take, you know, on an adventure. It doesn't take two minutes to refill your bottle, use a refill app rather than just use single use items all the time. So yeah, it's kind of a, mix really but it, it kind of goes alongside what we do so any profit from that obviously then goes back into helping us do any of the kind of citizen science or any of the research we want to do amazing so yeah t- definitely create, create tourism with a purpose for sure and i think it's really amazing and i guess people know that people know that are coming on your tours that they are helping fund this further research. And are the people that come on your tours, or is it people that have typically have experience with this already or they, they're kind of outdoors people or is it, you know, I don't know, I, I'm, or is it? Uh, most popular is our people who want to get into cold water swimming. Um, okay. To, or they need, you know, they want you to go and tell them how to do it safely. Mm-hmm. And you get a mix and then people from, like in the summer, really popular people from London coming down who were really interested in our environmental work, who wanted to support. So they would come out for the day and we'd take them to, like, I'd take them on their, some of the secret swim spots that nobody else knows about as a local, you know. So a mix, really, of uh, different different people and different things. But people either want to support what we're doing and want a nice day out, or people want to get into cold water, but they, they're a bit apprehensive about doing that. Yeah, fantastic. That sounds that sounds great. I mean, every, it's, everybody everybody can feel good about that exchange, and everybody's learning something, and it's, it's like an ever evolving process. What about what do you think about urban areas? I'm just thinking about access in general. People that don't necessarily have access to these really wild wild places. Have you seen any evidence in more like urban areas in the UK of people going wild swimming or cold water swimming? Uh, there's, there's been, especially this year. I think last year we it started to like boost the amount of mm-hmm. groups but this year with coronavirus it's really taken off so you'll see people swimming in really urban rivers like some mm-hmm. of the, the thames is really popular there's different ones in the thames in london and also okay. urban areas so, so if you're in the, in london you've got hampstead ponds and kind of natural ponds from the victorian times i've seen a couple of swim groups really campaign to get the old victorian tidal pools re reinstated you know that have crumbled away so there are places and there's definitely, you know, you don't need to be on the coast or in the mountains to experience cold water. You can get walk outside your house. My best thing to do is get an OS map and look for the mm-hmm. pools of water, put a ring around them, do a little Google search on them, check they're safe or have the access to get in there and mm-hmm. head out for the day. Oh, okay. So that the, it's available online in the UK and probably maybe in other places around the world where you can, you know, find that was, that was my, maybe my main concern was that it may not be so easy for some people to access clean, like swimmable water. Yeah. 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 yeah just in the UK, uh, there's a map called the wild swim map from Kate Root. Oh. And I think that's like a 
crowdsourced map where people mm. across the UK can log on and see where other people have swum. And there's a couple of wild swim books now really taking off that like kind of list places. We don't do that. We don't tell people where to swim unless they're coming on a tour with us because mm. of footfall and because these places are, are normally quite remote. And it, once you've published a beautiful photo of a place, like mm-hmm. that's it on everybody's bucket list. So like a thousand people will come to it and it's not good for the environment. So we're kind of treading a fine balance really of we want people to experience these places, but we want people to have the skills to be able to kind of look up themselves and go with a small kind of cohort of people rather than this is great for Instagram. You can stand here in your swimming costume for a great photo and absolutely ruin the place. So <laughs> Yeah, of course. And like and like we said before, you know, there are some, you know, you have to have some kind of preparations to be able to go out to these places. You know, you gotta hike out to these places, you gotta know how to use a map. You have to know a lot of things. You can't just, you know, wander out to some Instagram uh, post. <laughs> you know, just I, I was just I, I want to grab a, a little bit of info before before we leave today for anybody listening out there. Like, do you have any tips? If anybody's listening today, I'm asking for myself, too, because it's supposed to be somewhat nice weather here in Oslo. And I want to try to go wild swimming tomorrow. Any top tips of just like, you know, if I, if you want to just go swim in your own backyard in the lake nearby or the fjord nearby, or what, what should people bring with them? Or how, how should they prepare for a short, wild swimming trip? My nan always laughs when I say do wild swimming. She's just like, it's just swimming outside because when they were kids, that you just go in the river, wouldn't you? There's no such thing as a pool. But at this time of year, I recommend boots and gloves because they're the first things that you go because obviously all of your blood goes to your core. Mm-hmm. Your extremities kind of lose the heat first. So you can still wear a swimming costume, but gloves and boots will really help kind of the bite of the water. Okay. Sw- swimming, but, but yeah, what do you usually wear when you go? If you're starting, when I first started out, I'd buy five mil gloves and I didn't care if they were surf ones because my hands and feet would get really cold. Now I've sort of acclimatized. If you go all the time, you don't notice it as much. So I was in one yesterday and I didn't have any boots. Or, I was just still in a swimming costume. But if you're starting out and you've never done it before, you'll feel it a lot sooner you kind of you feel the cold so get some boots or gloves probably the thicker the better if you're worried about the cold like five mil ones you're talking about like like wetsuit like yeah. neoprene yeah. yeah gloves before you get in don't don't hang around like getting yourself cold you can warm up do a little jig before you get in but regular mm-hmm. breath so what you don't want to do is what most people do when they start off when they get in they they sort of hyperventilate and go oh it's cold. you don't want your body into a shock response so you just want to sort of like meditation when you go in like regulate your breath think like one two three you know breathe in and out and as you're getting in after get up to your shoulders and kind of tread water for about one or two minutes and that's your when your body will acclimatize so cold water shock happens when people dive in or jump in and suddenly submerge themselves in freezing cold water so get in slowly just walk in casually regulate your breath tread water and then once you've got over the initial shock of the cold, you'll feel all right. And then you can start off, start swimming. All right. And, and, and is there a time limit and is there a too cold? I just do it on my temperature gauge. But yes, in the winter, at this time of year now, you need to be a bit more mindful. So go in for a couple of minutes. So normally people say when people start off, whatever the temperature of the water is, don't go over. So if it's three degrees, that's three minutes tops. If it's degrees, <laughs> like don't be a hero. What you're going to be mindful of, if you suddenly feel tropical, like you're, it's so warm in here, I could stay in all day. That's the onset of hypothermia. So get out. Oh. Uh, so don't stay in that long. So, but to start with, do it gradually, going for a couple of minutes for a dip, get back out the next day, you know, keep building it up. And once you, you know, you can build up your time and you can stay in for much longer. If you want to stay in for a, quite a long time, a uh, wetsuit, I always wear a wetsuit if I'm doing proper swim training uh, mm-hmm. for a challenge. I'll wear a wetsuit because, you know, you just can't stay in as long. Question. Yeah, so like full body, full body, head to toe wetsuit. Yeah, boots, like if I'm doing long day, yeah, a few hours training, boots, gloves, the whole thing, the hat. If you're just going for a dip and you're worried about getting cold, you just stick a woolly hat on and your gloves and your swimming costume and go in, have a couple of minutes, get out, you'll feel great. Make sure you've got a hot drink and, and something sugary to eat to warm up your core when you get out. I always use like a dry robe, but you can get all different types, but to warm myself up, they're amazing against the wind. Yeah, definitely, definitely try it. Awesome. Yeah, I saw some people in the least pictures on your website too wearing like woolly hats while they're swimming. Is this really a thing? Yeah. Well, if you're not swimming like front crawling it across the uh-huh. lake to do proper swim training, you're just going for a dip. 
keeps your, you know, your heat heap escapes from your head doesn't it and so you can put your swim hat underneath and a woolly hat over or just a woolly hat yeah i think yeah. when i started out i'm wearing it in hydrotherapy but that's for a different reason and that mm. because my hair's pretty much black so when it's in water the camera couldn't pick me up ah. <laughs> <laughs> so i had to wear a bright colored hat so they could see me but yeah that's the kind of in the uk we're a bit eccentric over here but that's what people wear a woolly hat and swimming costume no, I, I mean, I'm always, I, I even wear woolly hats in the summertime. So I was like, I'm all about the ridiculous, uh, eccentric woolly hat wearing. So it sounds great. Yeah. Uh, uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Can you just tell us again where people can find you? Yeah. So we're We Swim Wild. So we, we swim wild.com or on Instagram, we're at We Swim Wild. And my own account is Wild Welsh Swimmer. <laughs> Yeah, it's really great. There's lots of really fantastic pictures and videos, and I'm sure people can figure out how to get involved or support what you're doing. And I don't know, maybe you can even start something like this in your own country if you're listening abroad uh, all over the world. In Europe, actually, ask like, "Are you doing this here? Are you doing this here?" But yeah, people can definitely set up. So all of what we're doing is basically something I've come up with in my my mind this year. <laughs> so like, I think mm-hmm. anyone can, if I can do it, anyone else, you know, anyone can. And social media is a great tool to access, you know, and get in touch with people that you would never normally bump into. Amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. Thanks to Laura Owen Sanderson for coming on the show. We swim wild. It is a great thing to do. And I think I'm going to go get my wetsuit and go swimming tomorrow right here in the Oslo Fjord. So I'll let you know how it goes. (laughs) Freezing. back everyone and thanks to laura for sharing her story and for all of her efforts to get humans outside while advocating for the more than human world and of course you can find her work by visiting weswimwild.com or following laura on instagram at wild welsh swimmer i've said it before and i'll say it again we all got to attack from all sides No matter what you're doing, do what you can to integrate healthy, sustainable, and environmentally aware actions for both yourself and the world around you in your daily life. Laura managed to do this by taking something that was life-saving, like cold water exposure, and turned it into something that was not only a passion, but turned it into something that was an action that creates positive change for others and the environment. All of our actions have consequences, and therefore, we are all activists. That being said, thanks for listening to us, everybody. And don't forget to follow us wherever you can and stay up to date on this podcast by subscribing. In fact, we have a new Instagram account up now so you can follow us there at TransNaturalPod. And hey, send us some of your pictures of going outside. I know for about half the world right now, it's icy cold winter. But as we say here in the icy cold north, there's no bad weather, just bad clothes. So so get outside this week snap us some photos tag us wherever you post them that would be amazing i would love to see that all right everybody until next time get outside see you later